So if we see it as a statement of needs and we're trying to figure out how to meet everybody's real needs, then we look for ways to, to solve that as a problem rather than it's a, you know, a win-lose competition and if I give you more, then he gets less sort of thing. Welcome to Tilt Parenting, a podcast featuring interviews and conversations aimed at inspiring, informing, and supporting parents raising differently wired kids. I'm your host, Debbie Reaver, and if you're the parent of more than one child, neurotypical or atypical, this is an episode you're definitely going to want to listen to. I get requests for topics from listeners all the time, which by the way is great, please keep them coming. But one of the most common requests is for an episode specifically on sibling relationships. So I found the perfect guest to talk about the sibling dynamic, parent educator Julie King. Julie co-authored the book, How to Talk So Little Kids Will Listen, a survival guide for life with children ages two to seven, alongside Joanna Faber. And she leads dynamic lecture presentations for schools and other parent organizations. Among the workshops she offers is one based on siblings without rivalry, and she brings to her work the perspective of having raised two differently wired and one neurotypical kids herself. I'm really excited to share this conversation with you, and I hope to do more episodes on this topic. So here is my conversation with Julie. Hey, Julie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's nice to be here. I'm looking forward to this conversation. This topic we're going to go into today is something I've been getting requests for for a long time from my community. And I think there's a lot to talk about, but I'm just looking forward to scratching the surface with you and getting a little deeper into this idea of siblings and how complicated those relationships can be. But before we get into that, I always ask my guests to just introduce themselves, give us a little bit about your personal background Uh, maybe your family makeup. And also, I always like to know people's personal why for the work that they do. Sure. Well, as you know, I wrote the book, How to Talk So Little Kids Will Listen, with my friend Joanna Faber. She and I met as babies. My family had just moved to the suburbs of New York, as had her family. Her mother was pushing her and her brother up the street in the stroller and my mother saw them outside, literally went running outside and invited them in. And her mother, Adele, and my mother, Pat, became very good friends. And Joanne and I became good friends. Well, at that point, we were just babies, but we went to nursery school together, actually all the way through high school together. But while we were in nursery school, her mother took a parenting workshop with a child psychologist, Haim Gannat, and she and my mother would talk daily about what she was learning. And they would experiment on Joanna and me and our siblings. So we were really guinea pigs for this whole approach. And after high school, we kind of went our separate ways. She went to college. I I ended up going to law school and I practiced law briefly and decided that the way that lawyers approach conflict was really not consistent with (laughs) sort of my orientation to problem solving and considering people's needs. And so when I, I'm sort of condensing my life story here for you. I I married and my husband and I had three kids and I discovered firsthand that it's kind of hard to do this all the time. This approach that I grew up with and I thought I knew was quite challenging. Um, When my firstborn Asher was a baby, I helped form a mother's group. We used to get together every week and I noticed that the other babies were starting to move around when he was just still sitting But I read all those books about child development that said babies develop at different rates. So I really wasn't worried 
until when he was just over a year, our pediatrician said, okay, now it's time you have to go see a neurologist. And the neurologist told me that Asher was, quote unquote, very developmentally delayed. By that time, I had noticed that it was pretty, pretty obvious that all the other kids his age were walking around and, you know, they would toddle around and fall on top of him sometimes. And he would shrink away and fear when they came near because he couldn't move. He could, you know, this tiny little sit scoop, but he really couldn't move very much. And I remember being offended when one of the other mothers in the group suggested that I was being a little overprotective of him as if it were my fault that he wasn't able to move. And I think underneath that, I was just worried that she might be right. You know, and I think that's a common experience for people with, you know, kids who are different. And for Asher, it wasn't just his physical development. His sensory system was also different too. So he couldn't tolerate being touched on his legs and his feet, which really didn't bode well for him being able to walk because he couldn't touch his feet to the ground. So we, end, you know, he went to physical therapy and the therapist gave me a brushing routine that I was supposed to do every two hours, which of course was impossible. So that added to my guilt, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I couldn't keep that up. But, you know, we did that as much as we could. And then I had a second child, Rashi, another boy who he looked different to me from the start. But at, at that point, Asher was still, my firstborn was still in physical therapy. So I got them back-to-back appointments. But my second one was different from my first. My first one was floppy. The second one was stiff. Asher, my first, was very sensitive. Rashi didn't cry when he got shots in his in his thigh. Um, he, he didn't seem to be as interactive with me in the world. He didn't seem to respond to sound in any, the usual way. So it was scary and worrisome in a different way. And, and then we had our third child. And I had a daughter. Uh, her name is Shirielle. And at that point, I figured, well, if I have a child, I really need to take them to the child development specialist because that's what you do in my family. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and I was kind of shocked to find out that she was a typically developing child. So Asher, he had sensory processing disorder, which is actually not a diagnosis when he was little. But And Rashi was eventually diagnosed with Asperger's, which, as you know, is now considered an autism spectrum disorder. And he was also diagnosed with very severe sleep apnea when he was nine, although I'm sure he had it all his life. Um, and I want to mention that I have talked to my kids about talking to you about them and about their diagnoses, and they've given me permission to talk about them, Okay, um, just so you know. <laughs> So I started leading workshops, the How to Talk workshops, when uh, my oldest, Asher, was in preschool. And those early groups were for all parents. And eventually, eventually I started leading workshops uh, specifically for parents with kids on the autism spectrum and for parents of kids with sensory processing disorder. Because I noticed that the skills that I was teaching were just as important, or maybe even more important, um, because we parents of atypical kids face challenges that other people don't face. It's even more important for us to know how to deal with frustration and conflicts and setbacks. And you know what they say about kids with autism. If you've met one kid with autism, you've met one, one kid, kid yeah. with his autism. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. So as a parent, it's very challenging to figure out how your child is experiencing the world and why they're doing what they're doing and what it's reasonable to expect of them. And what I noticed, um, especially when my kids were, were younger, is that most of the information and the programs that are set up for these kids, they address the behavioral issues of kids on the spectrum in a way that I would I think of as behavior modification, like giving them stickers and rewards and consequences and timeouts, that sort of thing. And to me, it seems like these methods don't acknowledge the full humanity of these kids. It's, it's, they're treating them as people to be managed or people to be controlled. 
And I'm trying to help people see their child as more than just a problem to be controlled and managed and manipulated. You know, clearly, to some extent, we all have to manage our children. And maybe we all have the ultimate goal that our kids will be well-behaved, so life will be pleasant for all of us. But the How to Talk approach encourages people to start by seeing the world through their children's eyes and to imagine what their children are experiencing. If we start with that, then I think it becomes easier to affect their behavior because we're not fighting with them. We're, we're not saying to ourselves, this kid won't sit still. I've got to figure out ways to make him sit still so he doesn't drop food all over the living room. We're saying, this kid doesn't want to sit still. He really needs to move. What, what can I do to satisfy him and satisfy my need not to have food all over the living room? Mm-hmm. Right? <laughs> and then we look for possible solutions. So I'm not advocating that we be permissive. I'm suggesting that there are more creative ways to meet each other's needs. And we have many stories in the book of parents working with their kids and their kids' needs instead of trying to control them. That's great. You know, we just had uh, on the show recently Dr. Barry Prezant. Have you read his book, Uniquely Human? Oh, yes. It's terrific. Yeah. So, and so in alignment with everything that you're saying, too, you know, that not looking at the behaviors. I mean, that's uh, that's the philosophy of tilt and, you know, the guests that I have on, but I just love hearing from so many people um, and the work that you're doing and just kind of helping to spread the word that this is a reframe that we as parents really have to make and how we're parenting and viewing our kids' behavior. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. And let me just ask you, how old are your kids now? Oh, yes. So now Asher is 26. He's uh, he's a partner in an online marketing company, and Rashi's 23. He's a computer programmer, and my daughter, Shirelle, is 20. She's a sophomore at Stanford, majoring in American studies. And I have to say that we've had our share of sibling conflicts when they were little, uh, but now they all get along very well. They call each other just to check in, and they you know, they give each other's advice and support. And they even like to come home for dinner and have dinner with me and my husband <laughs> so often. <laughs> So I'm, I'm at a totally new stage now than I suspect many of your listeners are at. Yes, but it's actually really inspiring for us to hear from, <laughs> from parents in the stage that you're at because, you know, it sounds like your kids are all, you know, that they're, they're thriving and, and that's really inspiring for us to hear too. I'd say, you know, most of the tilt community, we, we have kids in those, um, elementary and middle school years, I think is kind of the bulk of our audience. And it's really hard to see or even imagine what this could possibly look like down the road, because we're so in the thick of it right now and the the hard stuff. So that's really cool. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a friend of mine put me in touch with another mom of a, a child who had a similar, di- similar sort of profile to my second son, when he was much younger. And, uh, and her child was older. And she was telling me that her son followed a very di- different developmental path than most of the kids his age. And, you know, she went through many moments wondering, you know, will they ever get to a point where he can be more independent? Will, you know, how, how, what will the future look like? And she was trying to paint a, a, a hopeful picture to me. And I remember thinking, well, she just really doesn't know because nobody really knows. And so I know that worry. I know that, you know, we can't help but wonder, you know, what will the future bring? And I think when I was in the thick of it, I mostly focused on how we're going to get through tomorrow or this afternoon. Um, and my husband was more, you know, he took the role of worrying about the, the greater future. But, um, you know, it's hard not to think about that when you're raising your kids, especially when they have differences. Yeah, absolutely. Especially when you have a really crappy day. I mean, it's, you know, <laughs> yeah. you can be humming along and then suddenly 
things go downhill quickly and you're questioning everything and spiraling out of control about concerns about the future. So, well, I appreciate your perspective and you sharing that. That's really helpful to hear, not just for the listeners, but for me personally. (laughs) We'll be right back after this quick break. I'm on the road this month and oh man, am I missing my sweet kitties, Haskell and Lua. They've been a part of our family for more than two years and I'm so grateful they're keeping Darren such good company while I'm away. If you're getting a new pet soon, you're probably already thinking about everything you'll need to buy. Food, toys, a cozy bed, doggy bags or litter boxes. Something you may not be thinking about though is pet insurance. That's why you should check out ASPCA Pet Health Insurance. The ASPCA Pet Health Insurance Program offers customizable accident and illness plans, making it easier for pet parents like you to help your pet get the care they may need. The ASPCA Pet Health Insurance Program has been around for over 18 years, and they've helped more than 600,000 pets during that time. They allow you to customize your plan, helping ensure that your pet's plan is as unique as they are, because vet bills can really add up, especially when you're least expecting it. It's simple. Use their app to submit a claim and you'll receive reimbursement for eligible vet bills directly into your bank account. To explore coverage, visit ASPCAPetInsurance.com slash parenting. That's ASPCAPetInsurance.com slash parenting. Again, that's ASPCAPetInsurance.com slash parenting. This is a paid advertisement. Insurance is underwritten by either Independence American Insurance Company or United States Fire Insurance Company and produced by PTZ Insurance Agency Limited. The ASPCA is not an insurer and is not engaged in the business of insurance. If you listen to this show, you probably know that at least one in five children is differently wired. But did you know that approximately one in two women will experience hair thinning? If you're part of that 50%, you are absolutely not alone. But because hair thinning for women isn't something people openly talk about, going through it can feel lonely and frustrating. So why not do something about it with Nutrafol? Nutrafol is the number one dermatologist recommended hair growth supplement with over 1 million people seeing thicker, stronger, faster growing hair with less shedding. Everyone's root causes of hair thinning are different, so a one-size-fits-all approach to hair growth isn't going to cut it. Nutrafol has multiple formulas tailored to give your hair what it needs to grow throughout different stages, postpartum, menopause, even for different lifestyles like a plant-based diet. To get your personalized hair health plan based on your specific root causes, you can take a simple hair wellness quiz on Nutrafol.com. And because there's no prescription required, you can quickly get set up online with free shipping and automated deliveries, which make it so much easier to stick with your new hair care routine. See results in three to six months. Take the first step to visibly thicker, healthier hair. For a limited time, Nutrafol is offering our listeners $10 off your first month's subscription and free shipping when you go to Nutrafol.com and enter the promo code TILT. Find out why over 4,500 healthcare professionals and hairstylists recommend Nutrafol for healthier hair. Nutrafol.com spelled N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L.com promo code TILT. That's Nutrafol.com promo code TILT. So I want to talk about siblings. And as you know, you and I were discussing before the conversation, and as most of my listeners know, I have one child and actually his name is Asher as well. And a uh, great name. And so, you know, this is something that we haven't, I don't have personal experience with. And, you know, I have asked guests uh, who I brought up for various topics to touch upon sibling issues here or there, but I get a lot of questions from audience members who are 
just really finding it challenging to balance the needs of their differently wired kids, whether they're both differently wired, but in distinct, unique ways, or if they have one typical child and one neurotypical, you know, and it's complicated. And so as a way to get into that, I know um, that you have given and you give the siblings without rivalry workshops. And I'm just kind of curious, maybe if we could talk generally about some of the common conflicts that come up with siblings, regardless of how they're wired, and then we can hone in on some of the, the unique circumstances with differently wired kids. Well, I think that before we have kids, we have this this idealized notion, at least some of us do, those of us who step off the cliff and have a couple more, that that the kids will, you know, more or less enjoy being together and they'll play together and we'll have this wonderful, harmonious family. And I think once we have more than one child, what we find is that we don't actually live happily ever after. <laughs> we live sort of conflictually ever after because everybody has different needs. This one wants the window open and that one wants the window shut. This one wants to sing. That one needs quiet. This one wants to sit in your lap. The other one wants to sit in your lap. So I think that conflict is actually sort of a part of life when you're living with a, a group of people, especially when you have people with such different needs. I think sometimes we have to change our expectation, not from, you know, what am I doing wrong because the kids are fighting, but how do I use this as an opportunity to teach them how to resolve conflict in a peaceable way? I think that's a much more realistic um, frame <laughs> for what we're doing when we have kids. You know, of course, when one kid is, uh, if, you're, if your special needs kid is freaking out, we don't want everybody else to be freaking out too. We don't want the, you know, the sibling to, to start screaming and demanding attention and it would be easier on us. But I think that's unrealistic. I think it's unrealistic to expect that our neurotypical child will accommodate when the when the um, special needs kid is, is having a hard time. Everybody has needs and, and if we if we view it from the lens of how do we figure out what everybody's needs are and then how do we find a solution that works for everybody? Then I mean that's really the, the sort of general frame that I use to look at sibling conflict and resolve sibling conflict. Yeah. So, okay. So, so many things are coming up and I want to ask you a ton <laughs> of questions. Um, sure. But I also don't want to bombard you with all of these things. So I guess one of the things, and maybe, I don't know if even this is the right order, but this came up as you were answering that maybe when you work with families, uh, are you working with the kids too? Are you bringing them into the process and I guess I'm wondering how much transparency do you have, especially in a situation where kids are neurotypical versus neurologically atypical? You know, is this something we just get all out in the open and talk about it in in that way and enlist everyone's cooperation? If you're asking me what I do with parents, I work only with the parents. Okay. Um, I, I sort of coach them on how to talk to their kids. We, you know, I role play with them so that they can practice with people pretending to be kids, but a little bit more, you know, common, reasonable mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> or act, play acting. So it's a little bit easier. But then I send them home to actually try these things out with their kids. But nothing that I am telling them is a secret from their kids. You know, sometimes people say to me, you know, my kid picked it up, picked up the book and started reading the cartoons. Is that okay? I'm like, absolutely. These are tools and strategies that are useful for everybody in all relationships. They're not secrets. And um, so when you say, is there transparency? 
kids often know that their parents are going through a parenting workshop. You know, in fact, I've had parents come back to me and say, you know, things were so much better this week. My kids, when I told them I was going to the parenting workshop again, they said, good, go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we like that, please. Mm-hmm. So I want to talk about the question I get the most from people with regards to the challenges that, that they're having in their home. And you know, you mentioned guilt earlier. It's often this sense of guilt that their differently wired child is kind of taking up so much of the parents' time that so much they feel like all of their efforts are going and resources. Sometimes it is their financial resources. Everything is going towards this one child and the other child is, is typical. And so they just aren't requiring as much and. Maybe that's fine for them, but this sense of guilt is pretty pervasive. Is that something you have experience with and parents you've worked with? And, and can you speak to that issue? Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> um, yes, it's, it is challenging. I think we 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 have this notion that I should it should be I should be trying to be fair with my kids. You know, it's it's not right that I'm devoting all these resources to one kid and another. Um, and sometimes our kids will say to us, um, you know, it's not fair. You're always, you know, you're always taking him places. You don't take me places. You know, you're always spending time with him. And it's tempting to say, you know, hey, honey, it's not all about you. Your brother has special needs. We really need to, you know, blah, blah, blah. That's how they hear it. Um, you know, what kid is going to honestly respond? Oh, I didn't realize. Thanks for explaining it to me. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, very unlikely. Uh, so you don't want to make it sound like the typical kids needs are less important than his siblings, because that's a sure formula for them to start hating and resenting their sibling. You're better off reframing it as a problem. You know, my problem is I have to help your brother with his exercises. And I also want to help you plan your birthday party. Let's see how we can make that happen. You know, when, I, when I'm at my best, I don't make it sound like there's a finite amount of love and that the typical kid is being selfish to demand attention or that their needs aren't as important. You know, I don't want them to feel like they should be grateful not to be disabled. That's, you know, this, it's tempting to want to say these things to kids, but that's just not helpful. You know, it's tempting to say to the typical kid, like, you know, you're lucky. You have friends. You can do homework without me. You're independent. But really, you're not going to convince a kid that he's the lucky one by telling him he doesn't need your attention, right? So, you know, my goal is not to give my three children equal attention. That would be impossible, uh, you know, regardless of whether they have special needs or not, frankly. My, my goal is to give my children the attention they need. So if a child feels like they're not getting enough of your attention, you can avoid accusing them of being greedy. Like, what do you mean? I never do anything for you. I just spent three hours at your soccer game. Like that, that kind of thing. You know, that's how we think. Yes. <laughs> but it's not a complaint that that's grounded in logic. What they're telling you is, I, I miss you. I want more of you. So we can acknowledge that feeling. You wish we had more time together. I can't do it now. So let's let's make a plan. When can we do it? You know, and then maybe you can spend time together when daddy's home or your sister's napping or your brother's with a the therapist. So if we see it as a statement of needs and we're trying to figure out how to meet everybody's real needs, then, then we look for ways to, to solve that as a problem rather than it's a, you know, a win-lose competition. And if I give you more, then he gets less sort of thing. It seems like it's a situation too where that empathy piece is really critical. Like the acknowledgement of the child's feelings is... Uh, and that's absolutely critical. If, if you don't start there, no solution will work. 
because because you have to start by acknowledging that this is a real feeling and you really do wish you had more time with me and you don't like this. And if I try to gloss over that, I say, oh, honey, I'll, I'll talk to you later. They feel like, no, mommy, you don't get it. I want you now. And, and I, even if I can't do it now, if I can say, oh, I wish I could do it now. I see how, you know, how, how urgent it feels to you. You know, if I start there, then when I say, well, can we do, I can't do it now. You know, we want our kids to see things from, from, from each other's perspectives, right? We want, we want our, our typical child to see things from our perspective and understand from their kids' perspective. But if we don't start with theirs, with their perspective, they're not going to look at things from our perspective. That's how they learn that skill. We'll be right back after this quick break. This year, I've been working on becoming more attuned to my body, and so I'm starting to really recognize how periodic spikes in anxiety or disruptions to my routines can seriously throw my whole system off. And as I've been traveling a ton this past month, which is both disruptive and somewhat stressful, I'm especially glad that I have the extra support of Symbiotic Plus, a three-in-one supplement from Ritual with clinically studied prebiotics, probiotics, and a postbiotic to support a balanced gut microbiome. Symbiotic Plus provides fuel to the cells that make up the gut lining to support a healthy gut barrier. And it comes in this very cool minty delayed release capsule, which was specifically designed to help survive the harsh conditions of the upper GI tract for delivery to the colon. The bonus is that the capsules don't need to be refrigerated, so I can easily bring them with me in my carry-on. On a personal level, I love that Ritual is committed to sustainability. They're a female-founded B Corp, meaning they are holding themselves accountable long-term to not only think about their company's financial health, but also the health of people and our planet. There's no more shame in your gut game. Symbiotic Plus and Ritual are here to celebrate, not hide your insides. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash tilt. Start Ritual or add Symbiotic Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash tilt for 25% off. Hey there, it's Debbie. I love making this show and sharing conversations about how to support our awesome neurodivergent kids. I've seen how even one little insight from an interview can spark a big shift in daily life. But I know that raising complex kids can be messy and lonely. And just when we think we figured it out, something comes up that boots us right back to feeling overwhelmed and stuck. That's why I've poured everything into creating a way for parents like us navigating complex parenting journeys to join together and chart a path that feels positive, hopeful, and doable. It's the brand new Differently Wired Club experience. In the club, you'll get personal support from me and other seasoned parent coaches, six live calls every month where you can connect and get your personal questions answered, the opportunity to learn directly from authors and experts like I have on this show, monthly themes for getting specific and tactical, an exclusive private podcast feed, and the best, most generous community of parents. Seriously, these folks show up for themselves and each other, and that right there is really everything. Because it's a daily reminder that we're not alone. Our kids aren't broken, and we have totally got this. The recently rebooted Differently Wired Club is on a brand new platform with its very own iOS and Android app. It is such a great space. However you learn, whatever your style, no matter the ages, genders, and neurodivergent profile of your children, the Differently Wired Club can help you cultivate the positive shifts you're hoping for. Join us today by going to tiltparenting.com slash club. That's tiltparenting.com slash club. I hope to see you on the inside. This is just so fascinating to me. And it's also 
just hearing you describe this conversation and the way you need to just show up and not say what's on your mind, you know, or what you're thinking, but rather really go to their needs and the empathy and all that. It's it sounds exhausting. And how can parents support themselves when they are having to do I know that they're not going to do it perfectly all the time. But you know, how how do parents how can parents restore and recharge and be able to do this in a way that that works and keeps them sane? Well, that's, that's, that's a big question. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I think the service that you're offering where people can listen to and, and communicate with each other and share their stories with each other is so valuable. I know that when my kids were little, I think I mentioned that the first group I did was through Asher's preschool. We met for four and a half years weekly. And it really helped me to know that when I went through a period when I felt like I wanted to pull my hair out or scream at my kids, that I could go and talk to these parents who would get it and wouldn't judge me, would understand. I remember the very first time that I, you know, I, I was just furious at Asher for something. I don't remember what it was, but I remember how furious I was. And I and I went to the group. We happened to have a group soon after <laughs> And we all would do a check-in, and I said, I am so furious with him. I'm ready to you know, put him up for long-term lease. Does anybody want a five-year-old? Mm-hmm. And they were all, you know, I thought, oh, my gosh, they're going to be shocked. They're going to be stunned. They're not going to want me to be their leader anymore. And, in fact, they were all relieved to hear that I had the same feelings mm-hmm. that they did and that I got to that point also. And it was really helpful for me to be able to vent with them instead of venting at my five-year-old. In fact, I was going to tell you a, a story – somewhat along these lines because we all we all get to that point sometimes when you know I would get to a point where I thought I can't figure out what's helpful to say in this moment I don't even care in this moment so when they were this this happened when Asher and Rashi were somewhat older but um, Asher was teasing and tormenting Rashi he knew just what to say to get Rashi's goat you know just upsetting Rashi and I was just furious with him. I couldn't couldn't get him to stop, and I couldn't figure out what you know, like cut it out was not going to work, you know. Mm-hmm. And that's and so I sent him to his room and and calmed Rashi down. And then and I knew I needed to go talk to to Asher to find out what was going on. But I also knew that I was in no state to do that. I really just didn't care. So I did what I what I knew to do when I couldn't handle a situation, which is I went to my closet which I share with my husband. So it's got a lot of clothes in there. And so I can say things that are really horrible and mean. And nobody, the kids wouldn't hear me. And I literally went in the closet and started saying to myself, you know, he's just horrible, horrible. You know, how could he do this? And, you know, how could I have given birth to such a mean kid? He's so nasty. I'm, you know, I'm just furious at him. And then I thought, well, I guess I need to go talk to him him and find out what was going on for him. But you know what? I just don't care because he's just being nasty. <laughs> I had to do this for a while before I finally calmed down enough and went and talked to him. And then I, then I was able to say, Asher, I know that you can be a really kind, sensitive kid. You, really, you have good friends and you're nice to them. There must be something that really made you mad to say those things to your brother. 
And that's all it took. He had a long list of complaints. Every time he go to the ball game and I want to go to batting practice, he says he wants to go. And then when it's time to leave, he lies down on the floor and he says he's too tired and we miss the whole batting practice. And then when we do our family cleanup on Sunday, we're all supposed to clean up and he doesn't help. And he says he's too tired and it's not fair. And he like went on and on with this long list. I mean, I think he had compiled this list over the course of the year. you know. <laughs> and I... I didn't argue with him. I didn't try to explain why Rashi did what he did. I just listened. And I shouldn't say just because it wasn't easy to hear at all. But wow, no wonder you're so mad at him. He did a lot of things that you really resent. And then, yeah, let me tell you one more. So, you know, eventually I said to Asher, look, he, Rashi needs to hear it from you. But that's just too long a list for a person to be able to hear all at once. So how about we pick one thing to talk to him about? And, you know, together we planned that he would talk to him about the, the cleanup, which was supposed to happen every week. And it was predictable that Rashi often would lie down the floor. You know, this is, this is, he had sleep apnea, but this is before we knew it. So we just knew some, for some reason he would say he was tired. And so we went downstairs and Asher told Rashi how resentful he felt when Rashi didn't help with the cleanup. And Rashi said, you know, he wanted to help, but sometimes he really was too tired. So then I asked the question, like, what can we do so the cleaner-uppers don't feel resentful? And so Rashi doesn't feel forced when he's too tired. And we came up with some chores that Rashi could do when he did have energy, because there, there was always garbage and recycling to take out. So Rashi, he did make sure to tell his brother when he did these chores. He wanted a way to redeem himself. So... You know, I think it made a difference. It's not that they never had a conflict again, but that level of mean teasing went away. And then when Asher got upset with Rashi, he knew there was a way to talk to him and solve the problem instead of letting it fester um, and, you know, instead of getting back at him through teasing. And he knew that he had a mother who was accepting of his feelings of resentment, so he didn't have to bottle it up for so long. Yeah. Again, there's just so many things that you just touched upon that I think are so important. I mean, you know, just even that giving our kid the space to talk and us listening without, you know, responding, you know, and just being that neutral and holding that space for our kids to just express what they need to express is really hard and takes, I think, a lot of practice. Well, and I just want to point out the parallel because you, I guess you had asked me about how we take care of ourselves. And when I could, I would talk to other people who would do the same thing for me. Yeah. And in a pinch, I would use my closet, which for me worked. <laughs> it wasn't, you know, speedy, but it was, it, it worked. Yeah. No, I love that. I was, I was thinking, is there room in my closet for me? <laughs> uh, I don't know if that's the right spot for me, but I do love that. I mean, I tend to call my sister. My sister is always happy to just hear me anything I have to say. So yeah, it is important to be able to, to get it out. Yeah. And you just talked about, you know, that you use the word resent a number of times in that story. And you know, that is something that I, I know a lot of parents are concerned about is their neurotypical sibling growing up to resent their atypical sibling for any variety of reasons. And so you know, you just talked about the importance of you know, sounds like you facilitated a conversation between them where they could kind of get to the heart of the issue, what's really going on here. Do you have any other words of advice or strategies for parents if they're noticing that one of their child is starting to resent uh, their sibling or just the inequity that they may perceive? Well, you know, 
we touched a little bit on, on the frame of I, we don't try to give everybody equally. We try to give everybody according to their needs. And I think that's sort of a, an orientation or a life philosophy that I have that I sort of – so I spoke from that place when they would say it's not fair. You know, instead of saying, well, it is fair because you got this and they got that, it's more like it sounds like what you – it sounds like you really wish – that you you could have what your child has. In fact, I'm thinking when my kids were little, my son. So my son Rashi was also missed a lot of school. He was sick a lot, and my daughter noticed this. And you know, I remember her one day saying, "It's not fair. You know, he gets. I want to stay home too. How come he gets to stay home?" And of course, I'm thinking in my mind, "I don't want her to stay home. She's got school today. She'll be fine at school. You know, like, I can't handle the two of them." Um, but it's, you know, I knew that that wasn't going to work. I wasn't going to be able to explain to her in a way that was going to get rid of that desire that she had to be able to stay home. So, um, you know, what I said is it sounds like you wish that you could have more special time with me too. You know, I don't want you to miss school today. Let's think of when you and I can have special time. You know, how about, how about tonight when, you know, we'll ask daddy to put Rashi to bed so I can put you to bed and we can read some books together and we'll have some time together. And that worked for her. You know, I was lucky. That worked for her in that moment. Mm-hmm. You know, again, I think that our first impulse is to try to explain to them why things are the way they are. And I th- and I think sometimes we also get triggered because we feel a little guilty. Like, why, you know, why, at, why is he getting more of my attention than she is? Like, maybe that's not fair. Maybe I, sh- you know. But you know when you have more than one child that they have different needs at different times. There were times when she needed more attention than he did, even if he, you know, overall probably got – you know, if we did a mathematical formula of, of how much time, he, how much of my attention he got more than she did. But, you know, in each moment, what I'm trying to figure out is who has what needs and, and whose needs am I going to meet how and acknowledging that sometimes, you know, my daughter felt like I want more of your attention and not to deny it. You know, it's very powerful to say it sounds like you wish you had more of my attention. So much more effective than saying, look, honey, you know, it can't be like this. You know, if, if, I, if I start by acknowledging the feelings, that gets me very far in, in, in maintaining our relationship and, and helping her deal with what is. Yeah, I mean, it's so powerful when, when we can remember to do that really in any situation with our kid. And I noticed that with Asher many years ago that the minute I just acknowledged whatever it was, it's it's like a flipping a switch. It, everything changes. Suddenly they're receptive, listening, you know, it can shift their mood instantaneously. So that's a great reminder. Um, one of the things that I was thinking about as you were giving that last answer is, and this goes back to something I, I brought up in the beginning in terms of transparency. But if you think about a family unit and, you know, that we're all on the same team here, we're all working together. Is it good for parents to be, you know, really talking openly about their kids' neurodifferences and also to take it one step further, enlisting their help? Like, is it okay to say, hey, you know, this is a really difficult situation, as you know, for your brother or your sister. I'm wondering if you could help by doing this, this or this. Like, is that an okay thing to do? Well, it reminds me of when Asher, when Rashi first got his diagnosis. You know, he had all, we had all this testing done, and we were waiting for the results, and he knew exactly, you know, what was going on. He was, I think, twelve when when we got finally got him diagnosed with Asperger's, and um, 
So I went into his room. I thought, I'm going to tell him in private because it's, it's, you know, just for him to know. I took him into his room and I said, you know, we've gotten the results and he had Asperger's. And what that means is that different people learn social thinking in different ways. Some people learn it intuitively and some people learn it concretely and explicitly. And I said, you're more the explicit learner kind. So that's good for us to know. And his, his very first reaction was, let's go tell Asher, <laughs> which was really surprising to me. And so we went upstairs to, to Asher's room and he told Asher, guess what? I have Asperger's. And I explained to Asher, you know, at that point I hadn't really had a lot of time to digest it myself, frankly. But it was helpful to say to Asher, who kept, who had been saying to me, he just doesn't get it. He just doesn't get it. That, you know, now we know that he learns explicitly. And so not long after that, we were home and my daughter was playing with the neighbor girl who lives across the street named Danielle. And Danielle's mother, she would typically call me when it was time to send Danielle home for dinner. And I was in the kitchen cooking and my hands were all dirty and the phone rang and it was Danielle's mother. And I said, somebody pick up the phone. And Rashi said, I'll pick it up. I'll get it. And he went over and he stared at the phone, but he didn't pick it up. And we have an answering machine that picks up after four rings. I wanted somebody to get it before I went to the answering machine. So she, so Danielle's mother wouldn't worry. I said, pick it up, pick it up. It's, you know, it's Danielle's mother. And he just stared at it and didn't pick it up. And it rang for two rings and it rang for three rings. And it was about to ring for four rings. And so Asher ran over and snatched the phone and, and answered it. And Rashi had a fit. <laughs> and I remember thinking, what, what's going on? Like, you know, here it was Asher, Asher had rescued me because I wanted him to pick up the phone, but Rashi was furious at him. And Asher was mad at Rashi because he wasn't picking up the phone. So once we got Danielle sent home <laughs> and I washed my hands, you know, I, I realized that Rashi, you were, you were doing some sort of experiment to see, you know, if you could pick it up at the last minute before the answer machine picked up. And do you know what was going on for Rashi, for Asher? Do you know why he answered it? He said, no, I told him I would pick it up. I said, your words said, I'm going to pick up the phone. Your body language said, I'm not picking up the phone. And when people see a conflict between somebody's words and their body language, they always believe the body language more than the words. So that's why he picked it up. And Rashi said, huh, you know, like this was news to him. Yeah. And you know what? I think it was sort of news to Asher in the sense that he wouldn't have known how to explain it to Rashi. But, you know, it was, I was sort of both explaining it to them, <laughs> but also modeling, like, this is what it means when you have to learn explicitly. Rashi doesn't pick that stuff up. But once we tell him, now he knows. Now he gets it. I mean, of course, there are going to be other situations. But So in terms of talking to kids, I, I found it very valuable to be able to tell my kids what does it mean to, to have Asperger's? What does it mean to have sleep apnea? I would explain that to them too. Not that they necessarily could know what that feels like, but he was, before he was diagnosed, he was waking up almost once a minute to breathe. Not oh. that he was aware of it, yeah. but it, he, so he was, you know, people say, oh, I know what it feels like to be tired. I'm like, I don't know that you know what this feels like. This is beyond just like, I'm tired. I don't feel like it. And it was confusing to the others, especially when we didn't know what it was. I, I believed in my heart that there was something that was making him tired, that he wasn't making it up. But I didn't know, I didn't have the words for it. I didn't know what it was. But once we had the word that, you know, I found that very helpful to be able to say, you know, he, he gets woken up during the night. It took, us a, it took a long time for the therapy to work. Now he's doing much better. But, you know, there was, he, was, he was exhausted. And so I had to change my expectation of what he could do. And so did the others. Wow, that's really intense. I I didn't realize that kids could suffer from sleep apnea. That's I can't even imagine how disruptive that would be. 
I had no idea that, that a child that young, because what I thought was sleep apnea is something that middle-aged men get when they're overweight. Yeah, that exactly. Was, <laughs> that's what I thought. Yeah. And um, I have learned that is not the case. Yeah. Wow. So before we go, I would love to just ask you kind of a general question. And it just in terms of all your experience and, and what you've seen in your work and your workshops and any other just general best practices for handling conflict among siblings within families, you know, getting people's needs met or understanding the underlying needs sounds like it's it's right there at the top. But any other tips for people listening of things they could play with in their own families? Well, I think that when we have conflict between siblings or really conflict between any any two people, our first tendency is to try to solve it so it goes away. You want that, then he wants that. Okay, just take turns, you guys. You go first, then he'll go. And we want to tell them what to do so that the conflict goes away. So one piece of of advice, one thing that people can start to notice in themselves is, am I doing that? Am I trying to solve the problem before I acknowledge the feelings? Am I taking away their opportunity to learn what to do when you are in conflict with somebody else? I think that for a kid to learn the process, what do you do? When somebody wants one thing and you want another, I think learning what to do is a life skill that is so valuable and it takes a lot of practice. I mean, that's why even we as adults, we have conflicts that we we don't necessarily handle well the first time. I mean, we have to learn in our marriages what to do. Um, It's it's a sort of a lifelong that I think we first learn about in our own families. So if we can have the mindset with our kids that when there's a conflict, we're not going to just try to resolve it. We're going to help, try to help them learn how to resolve conflict. That little switch, you know, that little reframe, I think can both be more effective in the moment and help us find solutions that really work for everybody and also teach them such an important life skill that they can take with them for the rest of their lives. Yeah, that's great. I mean, I think you nailed it, you know, when there's behavior we don't like, when something's gone, we just want it to stop. Like that's our instinct typically. Like I want this to stop at whatever means necessary. And I think it's so important to, and it does take a lot of time and patience is key, but so important to realize that, yeah, these are great learning opportunities. Conflict isn't a bad thing. It's a part of being a human. We're all going to have conflict. And this is a great practicing uh, ground for people to learn those skills. And, and let me add that you can't do this all the time. I mean, I, the last thing I want to do is add more guilt to people's yeah, lives. Right. Um, you know, there are going to be times when you don't have the time, you don't have the energy, you don't have the closet available to calm yourself down before you handle it, where you're going to say, I'm going to decide who uses it first and who uses it second, and somebody's not going to be happy, and we're going to talk later about what to do next time. And sometimes that's the best you can do. And just acknowledging that I'm going to decide and somebody's not going to be happy. So see, even there, I'm I'm trying to acknowledge as best I can what's going to go on for them because because I can't do the whole process. Yeah, I imagine, especially in certain public situations or, you know, depending on the age of your kids, you're going to find parents are going to find themselves in situations where they just are in damage control mode or they need to deal with yep. something immediately. <laughs> and the the thoughtful conversation can come later. And just knowing that that's... You do what you need to do sometimes to get through that moment, and then you can circle back. Yeah. And I think it helped me to have thought so much about 
how to handle different kinds of situations because I've, I've worked with parents for so many years and we have a lot of stories in the book that I think really help parents sort of think through how would I handle this situation and, oh, there's a little trick I can, you know, keep in the back of my mind if this ever comes up. And, and, and I love to encourage parents to share their stories. We invite people to send, you know, if, if any of your listeners have stories from what they've tried after they listen to this podcast, I would love for them to send me what they've done, what they've said, what, you know, how their kid responded, because I think that sharing our stories, even more than just the general principles, is what really helps us when we're in the moment. Yeah, absolutely. Fantastic. Wow, this has been fascinating for me. And, you know, again, not having, uh, or having an only child, I still this is all completely relevant to every aspect of my life as a parent. And I know it's going to be super valuable to those and listeners who have more than one kid, and they're really struggling with this kind of stuff. So before we say goodbye, could you tell us the best place for listeners to connect with you and learn more about your work and your books? Sure. Um, we have a Facebook page for the book, How to Talk So Little Kids Will Listen. We also have a website, How to Talk So Little Kids Will Listen.com. And I have a personal website, julieking.org. And you can write to me from really any one of those places and I'll respond. Excellent. Well, listen, Julie, thank you so much for making the time and coming by and sharing this today. Again, super interesting. And I know it's going to be incredibly useful. And I really appreciate you coming on the show. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to the Tilt Parenting Podcast. To go deeper into this episode, visit the extensive show notes page. For every episode, there's a dedicated page on my website with links to all the resources mentioned, a full transcript, and a podcast player with key takeaways marked so you can easily go back and re-listen to the sections you're most interested in. Just go to tiltparenting.com slash podcast and select this episode. The Tilt Parenting Podcast is hosted by me, Debbie Reber, author of the book Differently Wired and the founder of Tilt Parenting. This episode was edited by Andrea Curtis Amasquita and show notes were put together by myself, Andrea and Lindsay McFadden. If you get a lot out of this podcast and want to help cover the cost of its production, please consider joining my Patreon campaign. On Patreon, you can sign up to make a small monthly contribution, as little as $2 a month, and it's super easy to sign up. Just go to patreon.com slash parenting to learn more, or click on the Patreon link on any show notes page. To follow Tilt Parenting on social media, go to at Tilt Parenting on Instagram and Twitter and on Facebook. Lastly, please help this podcast stay visible and easily found by the listeners who need it by subscribing and leaving a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you so much. And that's all for this week. Stay safe, stay well, and take good care. And for more information about this podcast or any of the resources that Tilt offers, visit TiltParenting.com. I'm Margaret. And I'm Amy. And together we host the podcast, What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood. Margaret, I would say you're sort of a where are my keys kind of mom. Correct. Sometimes a where are my kids kind of mom. (laughs) 
Well, you're aiming more of a, we were supposed to leave 35 seconds ago, Mom. I mean, touche. In each episode of What Fresh Hell, we come at a topic from our usually completely opposite perspectives. I bring the research. And I bring kind of the gimlet eye. Like, is that research really going to work, people? And almost 10 million downloads later, we're still laughing. We also talk to experts in the parenting field, plus parents with stories we can all learn from. We make each other laugh, we challenge each other's assumptions, and we have what we think is the best parenting community on the internet. Check out What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood wherever you listen to podcasts.